Thank you all also for helping out, everybody who helps out. Basically, it's the entire church. Thank you for your support, whether it's financial or whether it's just your time. Um, thank you for helping us. Uh, we do appreciate the support. We wouldn't be here uh, without you guys. So we are so thankful for just the worship leading us in worship. I know for myself, I could speak for myself, that it is a time that I look forward to every week. A time to sing with you guys. It's a time to worship. And I do feel like my soul refreshes that um, it, is, uh, it is something good that we're doing here. And I'm so thankful that in all this chaos, we could come together and just worship together. And that is something very, very nice and meaningful. And I hope as a church, we don't take that for granted. Um, we're going to talk about Today, we're going to continue talking about Jesus, as we, we usually do, uh, something that a lot of churches have started, and we do observe it to a degree. Uh, it's called Advent. Um, that simply means it's a f- kind of fancy word for coming uh, since after November, since uh, Thanksgiving has passed. Now, a lot of churches focus on uh, this Advent season, which is also known as Christmas talking about the birth of Christ. Now, we're still going to talk about the kingdom finish up. We've, we've basically t- talked about the entire Bible in one sense. We're finishing up. We're like in the last maybe 5% of the Bible. Um, but as we finish up, we're going to sprinkle some Christmas songs here and there and um, also talk about the birth of Christ as uh, the weeks come and we get ready to... Celebrate Christmas, although it's not really just celebrating Christmas, it's actually celebrating the birth that Jesus came, that our King came. Um, and we should do that every week, but as most churches do, we, we celebrate with them, um, celebrate that Jesus has been born, that he came. We obviously don't know the exact date when he came, but um, it is a tradition that has been celebrated, and it is an estimation that he was born during this time. Um, and I think it's a good season and a good time, especially after a long year, uh, to finally do something that brings us peace and joy, remember the birth of our king. But for today, we are going to talk about King Jesus, but we're not going to do it by looking at the birth of Jesus. Rather, we're going to look at this book called Hebrews, and we're going to look at how the kingdom and the king should influence how we see things vertically and also horizontally. Vertically, as you could see up in the chart, um, vertically, and maybe it's hard to see, but vertically, we will focus on Christ's enthronement as King and Lord. Horizontally, we will focus on what it means to live in a community under the King. We will start by looking at the book of Hebrews, which many believe is a written record of a sermon. Um, and Hebrews is full of language that presents Christ highly. I believe, as followers of Christ, we all need a high view of Christ. We need to see him as this high being. Yes, we could approach him, but we should see him as the Bible presents him. 
Let's start by looking at Hebrews, Hebrews 1, 2 to 13. And we're going to spend some time here. Uh, instead of reading the entire p- uh, portion of Scripture, uh, I just want to split it up into digestible portions so we could think about it and actually digest it. I know that sometimes when we read a large portion, uh, if it's a story, we could follow along. But if it's not a story and it's just a lot of deep theological concepts, it's kind of hard to follow along. So I did split it up into small sections. We'll start by looking at Hebrews 1, uh, 2 to 3, verses 2 to 3. And again, it is towards the end of your Bible. Maybe you could see here, it's like we have a couple pages left. Um, And I think that's a good thing that we've been consistent in this teaching amid all this chaos. So it says here in Hebrews um, 1, 2 to 3, it says, But in the last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, and the exact representation, the exact representation of his being. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. People have believed that this portion of scripture comes from an ancient hymn, um, an ancient song. This passage talks about the son And we know that the Son is Jesus. The Son here is the exact representation of God. When we hear about representation, what do we think about? I know that I've been saying this for uh, pretty often for the last couple of weeks, but I think it's central to the kingdom theme. Representation goes with this other word, that we briefly talked about last week. It goes with the word we spoke about when we first met. Representation should remind us of the word image. Being God's exact representation is to fulfill what it means to be an image bearer. And the son, Jesus, did that. Adam and Eve, the humans and humans since then, while they were supposed to represent God to this world, they have failed. But Jesus, in this verse, shows us that he is the exact representation of God. He is the true image bearer. He did not fail to represent God to this world. And as God's exact representation, the the Son sustains all things. He keeps everything in order by his powerful word, just like a good king. And because he was the perfect representation of God, after he died a sacrificial death, the Son sat down in bodily form at the right hand of majesty. This image of the son sitting at the right hand of the father is a prominent theme, a prominent picture throughout the New Testament. We saw it in Colossians. We saw it in Acts 2. We've seen it basically everywhere that we've read in the New Testament. And we should be comfortable using biblical language to describe these scenes. Though I believe no words are sufficient 
to describe the relationship between God and the Son. But we should affirm what the scriptures affirm. From this scene, we should understand that the Son is in a place of power. Let's go to the next verse. Verse 4, Hebrews 1, 4. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name. He has inherited is superior to theirs. So Jesus is superior because he received this name. The name that Jesus received indicates that he is superior to the angels. What is the name that he received? I want to argue that the name that the author is talking about here is son. This is the name that is being spoken here because the name of Jesus has not been mentioned in the book of Hebrews yet. Yes, we can look at other passages like Philippians 2 and assume that the author of Hebrews is talking about the name of Jesus. But it's not always a good idea to go from passage to passage to understand a specific verse. Let's read Hebrews from the perspective of Hebrews, not from the perspective of Philippians. Here is why I think the author is talking about Jesus receiving the name Son. And in this following slide, you could see that it's connected, the name Son, the name is connected to Son and also connected to Son. There's no mention of Jesus within this portion of Scripture. But obviously, we know that it's talking about Jesus, but right here, the name that they're referring to, that the author of Hebrews is referring to, is Son. I mean, this, this, this definition makes sense that it's, the name is referring to son. And it makes sense because the name son is superior to the name of angels. When you have the name of son, when my father calls me son, or when your father calls you son, it shows that there is this intimate relationship, this familiar type of relationship. And the son had that type of relationship with God. Angels don't have that type of relationship. They don't have the type of relationship where they call God Father. But the Son does. No angel was ever named Son. But Jesus was. Look at the following verses. It supports the idea of the name being the Son. That this was in, mind, uh, in the mind of the author. Verse 5, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. As you could see, the name son is being emphasized here. The first section is a quote from a psalm. This was a royal psalm that the Israelites would use to talk about the Messianic king. And the psalm comes from the second quote, I will be his father and he will be my son. This is a quote that we have read before. Think back when we spoke about King David, which seems like years ago. There was a time, if you remember, when God told King David that he would have a son who would be God's son, and God would be his father. The father-son relationship that God had promised 
David is fulfilled with Jesus. If you could go to the next slide, you could see that it's the exact quotation. First, 2 Samuel 7, 14 is from the story with God and David about this son. And the promise that was made to David about a son coming, a son who would be God's son and God would be the father of this son, that is fulfilled with Jesus. Jesus has a father-son relationship with God. God is the father and Jesus is his son and they have a beautiful relationship. And while angels are close to God, no angel can say that they have the type of relationship that the son has with the father. Let's continue to see how the author of Hebrews further elaborates on the son. On the son. Hebrews 1, 6 through 9 says, And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. And speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the son, he says, Your throne, O God. That's pretty interesting. The son is also God. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. All of the angels worship the Son. And the Son, Hebrew quotes the Psalms and says that the Son is God. Son is the God of the Old Testament, the Davidic King, and Yahweh Himself. And His rule is forever. He has a scepter of justice. This focuses on the Son's rule, the type of rule that He has. His rule is right, it's just. He upholds justice and rejects injustice. Therefore, those who are under the rule of the Son have no alternative but to hate lawlessness. As their king has demonstrated, we are not supposed to love it, love or appreciate lawlessness, but we're supposed to follow what our king has demonstrated to hate what is evil, what destroys his people. We have no alternative. But to say if something is wrong, we need to say that it is wrong and stand for justice. Hebrews 1, 10 to 13 says, He also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will per perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? The son is greater than any angel because the son cre created the world, created everything. And no angel sits at the right hand of God, but the son does. This idea of sitting at the right hand of God, as we saw earlier in the chapter, here we found it again, is a big deal within the New Testament. 
the main idea with this saying that, God, that Jesus is sitting at the right hand is that he is king. That is the main idea that's being conveyed through this language. Jesus is king. He is superior. God has appointed Jesus, both Lord and Christ. Jesus is also supreme. He is the only human whom God saw as the one who should be seated next to him. And I like what Photius, a patriarch of the church who lived in the 800s, said. I like what he says. He says this. He, Jesus, lifted up the first offering of our nature. So he was the first human to ever go up to heaven. And the Father marveled at this offering. And because of the high esteem of the one who offered it, because the Father had a high view of Jesus, and because of the purity of the offering, he as the Father, God as the Father of the household, shows him with his hand, the place close to himself, and also places the offering nearby and says, sit at my right hand. Jesus is the human who has ascended, offered himself, and now sits at the right hand of the Father. Humans were supposed to rule like Jesus, but they have all failed. Jesus didn't fail. He obeyed to the point of death, even dying on a cross. That's why he is enthroned today. There's so much more that we could unpack from the book of Hebrews. But for now, let's, let's now learn about horizontal living. So we, we've looked at vertical living by looking at Hebrews, at the first chapter of Hebrews, and directing our gaze to Christ, that he is enthroned. But now let's see, now that we're living under this King Jesus, what does it look like to live in the community that is under the King? And we will look at that by looking at the book of James. The book of James is very similar to the wisdom literature of the Hebrew scriptures like Proverbs, like Ecclesiastes. And, and, and it, they're very similar in the sense that they both focus on the life in the kingdom. Here's a question that I have been asking you guys to consider. How are the people supposed to live now that the king has come. How are people supposed to live now that the king has come? Well, we've looked at a couple things, right? Last, last time we looked at hospitality, and that is a main thing. But today I want us to look through the book of James and see how are we supposed to live now that the king has come, now that he has been enthroned, how am I supposed to live every day? Look at how James started. Here, here's one point, one way that we are supposed to live under the kingdom or in the kingdom under King Jesus. People are supposed to recognize the lordship of Jesus. I think that's pretty clear. If we're going to live under the kingdom, we need to recognize its king. 
If we look at James, James recognized the lordship of Jesus. James 1.1, it says, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. James 2.1 says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. James 5.7-8 through 8, 7 says, be patient, the brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. Verse 8 You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. You could see that for James, the lordship of Jesus is pretty important. He embeds it in everything he's basically saying. And I think it's important to recognize this. We may work hard in doing good deeds, but if But we need to recognize if we are really going to live under the king. It's not just good enough to do good deeds, but there is a need to recognize that Jesus is Lord and only him. He is king. A lot of people do good work. And that's good and dandy. But kingdom work requires a recognition of Jesus' lordship. No person can do true kingdom work without recognizing Jesus as Lord. If you go out without recognizing the lordship of of the Christ, that he is sitting on the throne, that he is king, and you do good work, that's good. But don't mistake that as kingdom work. To do kingdom work, to expand the reign of Christ, you must recognize that Jesus is Lord. According to the Bible, righteous living, kingdom living, includes recognizing our God and his Christ, Jesus Christ. And that's part of the reason why we started today looking at Hebrews. It's so we could have a high view of Jesus. It's so we could see him and recognize that he is Lord. For that is the first part, the initial step into re- in recognizing and entering the kingdom. We need to recognize that Jesus is Lord. Here's another thing about living in the kingdom, living as if the king had already come because he has come. We recognize that wisdom comes through living a new life where fighting does not define relationships. There are some relationships, whether it was with a partner or with a friend, that if you were going to define that relationship, you would say that it is full of fights. But James saw the kingdom. He saw that the kingdom, the relationships of the kingdom, that they are not defined by fights. Look look at James 4, 1 to 3. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill, you covet, But you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your pleasures. It is possible 
that we fight because we want our friend, our partner, to fulfill our desire, our covetous desire. It might be because we desire something in life. Maybe we want peace. So we look for peace in relationships. But we don't find peace in our friendships, at least not ultimate shalom, ultimate peace. We don't find that in our relationships, in our friendships. Maybe we desire our partner to act in a certain way, but they're imperfect. So our expectations are let down and we fight and quarrel. But here, James tells us that we should not rely on our relationships to satisfy our desires or our needs. No, we shouldn't rely on people for fulfillment. We shouldn't. But we should rely on God. But you might say, God has not given me what I needed. Then let me ask you this. Have you considered that you do not have because you do not ask? I like what one person said. Rather than useless fighting, arguing, competing, one ought simply to ask God for what one needs. Just ask. But okay, let's be honest. You probably have asked. But that is why James also said in James 4.3, as we read, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So, Don't just consider if you have asked, but also consider whether you have asked with the right motives. Augustine, probably the brightest Christian of the first millennia after the Apostle Paul, he said this, if someone intends to misuse what he receives, he will not receive it. If you're asking God to receive something and you're planning to misuse it, God's not going to give it to you. So, trust in God. Ask him for your desires. Don't trust in people. It's fine. And God does give us people. But ultimately, trust in God. Ask him. Check your motives. Are they pure? Are your motives wrong? Is the reason that you're asking a certain thing or praying that somebody would, ask, would act in a specific way, is that due to a personal desire to fulfill your personal pleasure, or is it really a just and pure motive? Are the reasons for you wanting a specific job, influence, fame, or power founded on a good motive? Consider what your motives are. Are you going to misuse what you are asking from God? At any rate, rely on God instead of trying to fulfill, trying to find fulfillment in people. Instead of doing that, instead of trying to find fulfillment in people. Because let me tell you, if you try to do that, you're going to find that people are going to let you down. You'll find yourself in many fights and in a lot of quarrels that you had no business being in in the first place. 
All of this could have been avoided if you relied on God. Here's another point about living in the kingdom. Speech is used to heal and not divide. I am sure we have been in circles where we heard people slander other people. Maybe we have been the target of slander from people because of how we talk, how we look, how we praise, our mannerisms. Or maybe we were the ones who were talking bad about other people. I have found myself on both ends. Slander, however, is not the way of the kingdom. Look at James 3, 5 through 9. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire. And it is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body. But it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself on fire by hell. It repeated itself, but that is fine. Extra emphasis on the tongue being like fire. The tongue has power. It sets things on fire. Here's a picture of a a scene that is not too uncommon here in California. We know a little bit about fires here. We know that a little spark can start a large fire. Um, There was, and, and and it feels like every summer we do see these fires arise. There was a story about El Dorado's fires that sparked my interest. This fire that encompassed 10,000 acres all started because of a spark. It all started, this huge fire started because of a spark. And this spark came from a gender reveal smoke machine. This little spark started this huge fire. A spark. And there are many other fires that also start because maybe a spark from a campfire, maybe a cigarette that still has some fire within it. It's still lit a little bit. And these small sparks, they could wreak, they could bring havoc, cause a big fire. And likewise, our tongue, something so small, could wreak havoc. It can burn the life of a person. I found this statistic interesting. 70%, 77% of all students have been bullied verbally. 
Some of those who have been bullied have consequently experienced low self-esteem, depression, anxiety, and even suicidal thoughts. And I know that for the most part, many of us here have already uh, left high school, um, but I, I still want to cite this stat to show that our tongue has power. Our words continue to have power today. And as Christians, our tongue should give life. Our tongue should not kill. Controlling our tongue is a hard thing. It's like an untamed, poisonous snake. But it is capable of doing good. We can praise our Lord and Father with our tongue. And we should. But the tongue can also kill fellow human beings. Humans who have been made in God's likeness. Douglas J. Moo, a respectable professor of the, New, of the New Testament at Wheaton College near Chicago, he wrote this. We may never reach the point where the tongue is perfectly controlled. But we can surely advance a long way in using our speech to glorify God. Let's strive to glorify God with our tongue. Let's strive to heal. Here's another way that we could also live under the king. In God's kingdom community, there is no partiality shown. James 2, 1 through 9 says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into the, your meetings wearing gold ring and fine clothes. And a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you. But say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor, and is, not, is, not, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are you, they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. The main point of what we read is to not discriminate. James talks about a poor man and a rich man walking into one of our church services a church member who is selective, who discriminates, may say to the rich, you sit here at this good seating. But to the poor man, he, you, this person who discriminates might say, you stand over there. About two years ago, a pastor did this social experiment. Here is a picture of him. This pastor dressed up as a homeless man and panhandled by his church. He pastored a large church, and he noted that there were people who walked away 
to avoid him. But fortunately, there were people who gave him food, said hello, and prayed for him. Here's what he said, and I think it's true. If we're going, if we're going to love like our Father in heaven loves, we don't get to play favorites. We don't get to play favorites. Look, God chooses the poor to be rich. He has different eyes than the world has. He sees the poor as the rich in faith. And in the kingdom, we must follow the royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. And it doesn't matter who our neighbor is. Our neighbor could be just like us. She could be our age. Or he could be from the other side of the world. It does not matter. Don't discriminate. Instead, show God's love to all. Let's represent him. Another point, number five, citizens of the kingdom are hearers and doers of the word. We will read James 1, 19 to 25. It says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is prevalent and humbly accept the world, the word planted in you which can save you. Do not modify the... Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. We must be a community that listens. So much of the world just wants to say what they are thinking. Look at social media. Social media is so prominent because we just want to say something quickly and loudly. But as we see here, instead of applauding those who are quick to give an answer, we should applaud those who are quick to listen. The loudest is not the one who is always right. No, we must be a community that listens. Quick to listen to God's word, listen in church, listen to Bible reading, listen to other godly preachers online. And I also think that we should be quick to listen to people who might not believe the same things that we believe in. Don't be so quick to debate them, but, but listen. Slow to speak. And this passage also says, slow to anger. We may feel righteous when we get angry. We might think, I'm going to make things right. But really, when you act in anger, you're not producing the righteousness that God desires. Instead of getting angry, be humble. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, 
slow to anger, and humble. These sound like good things. But as I've said before, I'm not here just to make all of you smarter, to know more stuff, or to hear good things, or make you feel good. No, I pray that you would not just listen to the word, but you would also be doers of the word. Do what the word teaches. Sometimes you forget that the Bible says, that you forget what the Bible says because you don't put it into practice. So we must be a community that not only just listens, but also acts. We must be a community that listens and acts. And I close with this point, last point. Kingdom citizens see the difficulties of the present life as preparation for the crown of life. It has been said that Christianity is not a field of roses. No, you will face challenges. You will face problems. Even if you practice all of the wise sayings that we have covered today, you will face problems. But we should have a different attitude than those who live outside of the kingdom. James 1, 2-4 says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Consider it pure joy. This is a hard thing to say. I've seen some hard stuff, especially when I volunteered at a a hospital as a spiritual care volunteer. But yet, we are supposed to consider it all pure joy. Pure joy. And it's very likely that James wrote this, wrote about considering it pure joy amid trials. He, he, he probably wrote this to Christians who were facing trials. And they were probably facing persecution. Brothers and sisters in Christ suffered persecution just because of what they believed. And yet James is telling them, Consider it pure joy. <laughs> I just think about this, and if I am honest, I'm like, James, I feel like you're being insensitive. But actually, James is not insensitive here. He understands the sorrow, the trials that people go through. But he also understands that God may allow trials to arise for a reason. There is a purpose for trials. God is in control. God has a plan. And the trials and the the part of the plan does involve trials. And God may use these trials, all part of his plan, to produce perseverance. No longer will you be tossed from here to there, but instead you will cling to our king because of the trials that you went through. 
I can assure you that the Christians who underwent the trial of persecution, they had a faith that wouldn't move, wouldn't wander, but it was firm in Jesus Christ. They certainly believed that Jesus was king. They were even willing to die for that truth. And while part of the reason we may suffer is for perseverance, is so we could actually know what we believe in, we will never understand all of the reasons why we go through trials. There's some trials that look like they're senseless. And it doesn't make sense. But just know this and be aware of this. God is in control. And he does want the best for his people. So let's have pure joy. It's not a forced joy, not a superficial joy, not a joy just because. No, it's a joy that stems from knowing that God is in control. He is king. He is sitting on the throne. And he uses these trials for his perfect plan. And part of it is to make our faith in us stronger. And I end with this old, last verse, James 1, 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Our king is a good king. Partially because he is fair. He sees you who are suffering. He sees that you are persevering, keeping faith, bowing down to the king. Even if it's hard, he sees it. And have hope. You are blessed. If you endure and maintain this faith in King Jesus that he is enthroned, that he is sitting on his throne, you will receive the crown of life. Not in this life. Maybe in this life you may suffer a lot. But you will be blessed in the afterlife for all of eternity. So this week, let's persevere. Let's serve our king. Let's represent him on this earth. For our king, he will reward us. He will see that you will be recompensed for what you have done. Right there where you're at, if you want to join me as we close in prayer. If you could close your eyes and bow your heads. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for everything that you have done. And I pray that this week we may worship you as king through our actions, through our deeds. Let us not slander, slander people. Let us not discriminate people. Let us be slow to anger, slow to speak, slow, slow to just act out of our own selfish desires. But instead, let us rely on you. Let us listen. And Lord, it may be hard to live this this life, this kingdom under you, but we believe that you will reward us. Maybe not in this life presently, but you are a just and fair king and you know what we go through and you will make things right. You will give us a crown of life. And I pray that in this moment we may worship you, Jesus. You are 
Lord. And you are beyond the angels. You are amazing. Let us worship you today in the name of Jesus.